from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. It is very hot in California right now. Over the Labor Day weekend, the state baked under a record-breaking heat wave. Fresno reached 113 degrees, Sacramento 114 degrees, and the heat wave is stretching on longer than expected. On Monday, the state asked people to cut back their power use to save the grid from brownouts or blackouts, and blackouts are a very real risk right now. And California is just the latest in a series of heat waves blanketing the globe this year. A few weeks ago, we ran an episode about the historic heat wave in Europe, and these events are deadly. So this week, our producer, Alexandria Herr, wanted to take a deeper look at why that is, and she's here with us. Hi, Alexandria. Hey, Stephen. Tell me what you've got. Well, after we ran the episode about the heat wave in Europe, I wanted to understand why extreme heat is so deadly. I mean, I think a lot of Americans don't really see heat as an emergency. We do tornado drills, earthquake drills, we make hurricane evacuation plans, but most of us don't really think about preparing for extreme heat in the same way. No, definitely not. I, I mean, I've never done a heat drill. I've checked my phone, seen what the weather's going to be, and run upstairs and turned the cooling setting on my heat pump, but never a heat drill. Yeah, I definitely haven't. But in the last few weeks, I've spent a lot of time reading and speaking to people who think a lot about heat waves. And in that research, there's one name that kept coming up over and over again. My name's Eric Kleinenberg. I'm a sociology professor. I teach at New York University. And I work on cities and climate change and crises of all kinds. Exactly 20 years ago, Eric Kleinenberg published a book called Heat Wave. It's probably the most important book to have ever been published about heat. It's about a heat wave that took place in Chicago in 1995, and it killed over 700 people. The heat wave was a kind of early indicator that something was wrong, something was off in the climate, in the weather, and also in the cities. And Dr. Kleinenberg wanted to understand why was that particular heat wave so deadly? What exactly went wrong and how? What I wanted to do in this project is imagine like getting 30,000 feet above the city and just opening up its skin and reaching in and trying to identify what, what are the organs that really break down and make a city collapse. And what he found, it surprised him. When I zoomed in a little bit more, I noticed something that no one else had really seen, which is that there were a set of neighborhoods in Chicago that had more or less the same demographic makeup, similarly segregated, similar rates of poverty, similar rates of older people living alone, and yet they had tremendous variation in how much death they had in the, in the disaster. So two neighborhoods, same demographics, but in one, a bunch more people died? That's right. And to understand why that happened, Dr. Kleinenberg became a kind of heat wave detective, trying to figure out why one place was so much more impacted than the other. And the answer to that question is the key to understanding exactly how heat waves become so deadly. And it might also help us figure out how we can build better systems to protect people from the heat. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm Alexandria Hurd. This week, we're going to hear about what Dr. Kleinenberg found when he studied that 1995 heat wave and how those lessons are being used by people working to protect us from extreme heat today. Mm -hmm. 
Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Just like a lot of other disasters, I'm thinking hurricanes, floods, heat waves don't impact people equally. Racism and income inequality are major factors in shaping how people are affected by heat waves. Extreme heat is an environmental justice issue because it impacts people of color and low income first and worst. This is Sonal Jessel. She's the Director of Policy at West Harlem Environmental Action, or WE ACT, and she spends a lot of time thinking about how extreme heat impacts people's lives. A lot of that comes down to neighborhoods that were formerly redlined. Those are neighborhoods that in the during redlining and even after didn't receive funding for all sorts of structural services and, and built environment upgrades. So uh, these are neighborhoods that didn't receive trees and parks that were not invested in when it comes to housing quality, did not receive investments in social services and community services. And so what we see is a place like East Harlem doesn't have as many old trees and green spaces that helps cool the neighborhood down. And there's really old housing that's poorly maintained that tends to trap heat in people's buildings and have poor air quality. I feel like there's been a bunch of new research coming out recently about this issue, how the impacts of redlining have shaped environmental conditions in neighborhoods today. And if you'll remember a few months back on the show, we spoke about a study that showed there were more oil and gas wells in formerly redlined neighborhoods. That was a story that you brought us. So it sounds like the impacts of heat are really similar. Exactly. A study that came out a few years ago, it found that neighborhoods that were formerly redlined today, they're about five degrees hotter than neighborhoods that were not. And that number is almost 13 degrees in Portland and 10 degrees in Minneapolis. 13? That's wild. Five degrees seems like a lot, but 13? Yeah. On a hot day, that difference can be the difference between life and death. So the impacts of heat waves are really shaped by systemic racism. And when Eric Kleinenberg looked at mortality from the 1995 Chicago heat wave, similar patterns emerged. The first thing I did when I started working on the, the book is I drew a map of which neighborhoods in Chicago were most affected. It was just a map showing that the places that have a lot of racial segregation and a lot of poverty were the places that had the highest deaths for the most part. Another pattern that Dr. Kleinenberg found was related to age. One of the first things I noticed is that a large number of people who died were, were old and they were living alone. And one of the big reasons that so many people die alone in heat waves is because so many people are aging alone in America on a daily basis. We have never had so many older people in this country. We've never had so many people living alone and aging alone. And the truth is that that puts a lot of people at risk. But when he started to dig deeper into the map that he drew, he became curious about what was going on in just a handful of neighborhoods. I really keyed into these pairs of neighborhoods that were separated by just a street. 
and that looked so similar statistically but had really different experiences. So I wrote about neighborhoods Englewood and Auburn Gresham and these two neighborhoods on the south side look very similar on paper. Uh, Englewood had a death rate that was 10 times higher than Auburn Gresham, even though it's separated by just a street. And what, what really seemed to be the issue when you spent time in the, in, the, in the neighborhoods is Auburn Gresham has this robust social infrastructure. It's, it's got active sidewalks, it's got neighborhood organizations, it's got you know, playgrounds, it's got a big church that provides a lot of services and community organizations, a lot of gathering places where people are accustomed to seeing each other. Those community spaces, churches, playgrounds, they end up mattering a lot when a heat wave hits. If it's 106 degrees outside and you've got an older neighbor who's always sitting on a certain bench or on a stoop or always at the diner and they're not there, you know to walk over and knock on their door and check in on them. And it turns out in a heat wave, that knock on the door can make the difference between life and death because it's not that hard to protect someone from a heat wave. They just need to get exposed to cool water or air conditioning, you know, if you get to them early enough. The neighborhoods like Englewood across the street that were really devastated by the heat wave, they... They, they were devastated all the time. They were depleted. They, they had abandoned buildings. They had empty lots. They didn't have a grocery store. They, they didn't have safe gathering places that drew people out of their homes and into the public realm. And so nobody noticed if the neighbor wasn't sitting outside because the neighbor's never really sitting outside. Uh, and, and that no, dot knock on the door didn't come. And so there were neighborhoods across Chicago that were especially devastated. And those were the places that weren't just segregated, they, they also had a lack of social infrastructure. So the neighborhoods that had more deaths, the people there were more isolated because their social infrastructure had been depleted. Hmm, so isolation is a big factor. And I feel like we can all relate to that after the last couple of years. The word isolation has taken on a new meaning for a lot of us. I mean, I know it has for me, that's for sure. And isolation from the pandemic combined with the heat wave can make for a really dangerous combination. I asked Dr. Kleinenberg about exactly that. I'm also wondering a little bit about how isolation during the pandemic might have exacerbated um, that problem that you talk about of like this hollowing out of social infrastructure that produces vulnerabilities. Well, the heat dome in Portland and on the West Coast, the Northwest in, in 2020 was really a terrifying event because you know, you had this extreme heat. You had uh, a region that doesn't really have infrastructure that's set up for dealing with extreme heat. Um, but 2020 was was especially scary because when the heat dome settled over the Northwest, people were still being told to kind of hunker down, to avoid social contact, to isolate, to protect themselves. And so there the dilemma was that isolation was both a way to protect yourself from the pandemic and a way to imperil yourself in the face of extreme heat. And so, you know, to live in Portland as an older person in 2020 was essentially to be trapped by the situation, you know, damned no matter what you did. The thing that is kind of wild to me is that this book came out 20 years ago and it all feels so relevant to what's happening right now, so familiar. I mean, I know that when I read this book, it felt like a window into the future in some way. This pattern that played out in Chicago in 1995, it's still playing out today in 2022 in Spain, in China, in California, all these places that are getting hit with devastating heat waves. 
But the good thing is that people who work on extreme heat are using Dr. Kleinenberg's work to advocate for policies that could help protect people. Eric Kleinenberg's research is just seminal research in this area and I think has provided so much evidence and just really a jumping off space for groups like us and a lot of other researchers who have now been adding on to that body of work to really expand upon it and understand how do we protect those most vulnerable in our community when it comes to extreme heat. And that's coming right up after the break. So we've been talking a lot about why heat is so deadly. And I know there's been movement in cities to hire heat officers, people who are actually in charge of dealing with this issue, or there are more officials who are coming in inside government who are taking extreme heat more seriously. So what are cities doing about it? How does this wrapped up into how cities are trying to address this problem in a different way? Well, if you remember Sonal from the top of the show, she's not working for the city government, but she's an advocate who fights for protections for extreme heat. And one of the most important factors in protecting people from heat is really just as simple as, do you have air conditioning in your home? Can you turn it on in a hot day? And so Sonal and her organization advocate for expanding access to AC through energy assistance programs. And in New York, that means the Home Energy Assistance Program, or HEAP. What we argue the state needs to expand upon as the climate crisis gets worse is the cooling assistance program. Right now, only about 4% of the funding goes to the cooling assistance program out of the heap pot. And it only pays for in one air conditioning unit up to an $800 in value every five years for a household. These programs are really important to ensure that low-income families can afford to turn their AC on during dangerous times of the year. So really expanding them could help people stay safe in their homes when a heat wave hits. Obviously, getting air conditioning in people's homes feels like a really important first thing to do. But this isolation element seems really important as well. Like, How do we address that? It's a hard problem. And cities across the country are also starting to think about creative ways to solve it. I spoke to Danielle Renwick. She's an editor for Nexus Media News. Earlier this summer, she wrote a piece where she spoke to a bunch of different city officials from across the country about how they're preparing for heat emergencies. And she said that, like in Dr. Kleinberg's work, isolation emerged as a major theme that all of them were thinking about. Did you find, after talking to all of them, that there were a set of challenges that were particularly common across all of these cities? Yeah, isolation. I felt isolation was the was sort of the strongest feature. One thing that all the cities had in common was one of the biggest risk factors is isolation. And so a couple of different cities across the country have designed programs specifically to address the problem of isolation, and that includes Portland and New York. The city is partnering with the organization Meals on Wheels because they realized that there's a lot of overlap in a population that is vulnerable to heat, which is you know, an isolated, elderly, low-income population and the population that Meals on Wheels serves. So that's why you have Portland partnering with Meals on Wheels. New York launched a Be a Buddy program, which does exactly what it sounds like. It matches people at risk. So people who are older, people who might rely on oxygen or other medical devices, it matches them with volunteers in their neighborhood. And the idea is that during a heat wave, or other kinds of extreme weather, especially a situation where you might have, say, a power outage. People check in on each other. 
And I thought that was just such an interesting, simple solution, but speaks to, I think, so many other sort of systemic challenges we have with with isolation and um, how that's a public health, you know, isolation in and of itself is a public health crisis. Sonal and WEACT have also been advocating for the Be A Buddy program to be funded and expanded across the city. It's proven to be quite successful and we advocate that it does get expanded across the city. And for that, the Be A Buddy program does need significant uh, amount of funding to do so. Yeah, It's all about how do we have communities build connections within their community, within each other, to make sure that we are checking on our most vulnerable residents, that we are making sure people have what they need. What's really important about Be A Buddy is that it is very much community-led. So there's a big difference between our New York City Department of Health, no matter how wonderful they are, reaching out to someone to check on them versus a neighbor reaching out on someone to check on them most people are more likely to respond more positively and answer the phone <laughs> for people that they know and know are, are checking on them So and, and people that they trust specifically. So the Be A Buddy program is really important. So that's one way that cities are starting to make sure that people aren't getting left behind. But another way to get people connected to their community in heat emergencies is to have cool public places where they can go when a heat wave hits. Stephen, have you ever heard of a cooling center? Oh, yeah, sure have. I I see photos of these all the time during heat waves. There are these government-run centers where you can go and get cool, maybe a school gym, a public library. There are these tables set up, places for people to sit. And, you know, people can go, like, charge their phones and, and hang out, read a book, and stay cool. Yeah, exactly. They can provide life-saving access to air conditioning and water on hot days. Unfortunately, they also tend to be kind of underused during heat emergencies. Oh, that's so interesting that you make that observation because in these photos, I always see just a couple of people in these large rooms with fold-out tables set up. And I always wonder, like, why aren't there more people in there? Yeah, and I mean, that's not just an anecdotal observation. It's kind of a thing across cooling centers that they tend to be underused. And Sonal has worked a lot in New York to try and understand why that is. We first did a cooling center audit in 2019 where members, uh, there's about 20 or 30 of WEACT members, basically ran around northern Manhattan on really hot days to go to cooling centers where they were open and actually find out if they were checking the box for various aspects that our members thought were important for cooling centers to have. What we find to be The less successful cooling centers are places like schools that are not traditionally places where people would go on their afternoon. And we find that no one will go on the afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No one will voluntarily go somewhere they don't want to be just because it's a cooling center. What we found is the ones that were the most populated are places where people are already going, like public libraries Mm -hmm. and senior centers. That's somewhere that people are going to go on a Saturday, no matter what. Seniors will go to their senior centers every day to hang out, no matter what. And that's a perfect place for a cooling center to be. The Brooklyn Public Library is a cooling center. And I remember being there on one of the hottest days of the summer and being struck by what an amazing resource it is. There's water, a bathroom, there's books to read, Wi-Fi, places to sit down. There were even free COVID tests. 
And unlike a lot of the pictures that you mentioned where there aren't that many people, the library was packed. There were lots of families, kids, older people, just hanging out, reading, cooling down. And I remember thinking on that day, this is the kind of social infrastructure that Dr. Kleinenberg is talking about. This is the community fabric that can make a life or death difference on a hot day. When we're thinking about kind of designing social infrastructure, we should always be attentive to what kind of designs, what kinds of programming make people feel like they're at home and and which ones don't. Cooling centers are doomed to failure if they're, you know, bland high school gyms and places that people would never spend time on a typical day. You'll only go there if you're forced to go there, basically, if you're forced to evacuate your home because it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant, it's unfamiliar. But if people use a library in their neighborhood on a regular basis, and the library is the place for them to go to get safe, I guarantee you they'll go. The public library is kind of the quintessential social infrastructure for me, a branch library that lets you in regardless of your social class or your race or your age or your citizenship status, you know, that recognizes and respects you when you walk in the door. You know, the librarians don't do a security check. They just ask how they can help you. They, you know, they, they, they respect your privacy. They find a comfortable place for you to sit. And so a library is an amazing kind of social infrastructure. And for me, it's a, it's a nice model that I think all of our shared spaces should, should live up to. You know, how, how open is your public space? How, how, how well programmed is it? You know, how much does it dignify you? I don't want to be glib about what it means to run a library as a safe space or a cooling center. Libraries can't do everything for everyone or else they'll collapse. And we don't give libraries enough resources to do all that work. But, but they are an excellent model for how we should build other kinds of public spaces. For Dr. Kleinenberg, tackling climate change also means building more places like this, Accessible public places where you can come and see people from your community. That means parks, libraries, senior centers. The capacity to bounce back and to recover and to regroup is impossible if if you don't have a place to do it. And the story of the two neighborhoods in Chicago is really a story about the significance of social infrastructure for survival um, during a certain kind of event. But you need it for for all kinds of rebuilding and for reorganizing as well. So I think every climate plan needs to have a social infrastructure plan. I love that. Every climate plan needs a social infrastructure plan. And it it might be surprising to some people. Uh, We think of climate change sometimes in these really technocratic ways, like, you know, the, the energy solutions, the infrastructure solutions. But when we think about infrastructure, it could mean schools and libraries opening up to people. And in the context of heat waves, it all really makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree. The problem is a lot of the places that have been disinvested in that lack this social infrastructure to begin with tend to also be places most affected by heat. I think this is why I said extreme heat is such a complex issue because it it really just does make matters worse that are already problems. So you know, if you have a neighborhood that is lacking social infrastructure, you're already dealing with a host of issues in that neighborhood. Set aside extreme heat. And the the solutions for extreme heat are also solutions for a lot of bigger issues within a community or bigger needs within a community. So, you know, 
areas that don't have libraries or community centers or public places for people to go is a neighborhood that has not been invested in adequately and received received the support that they deserve. On the other hand, addressing the root causes of heat mortality can also go a long way to bringing all kinds of other benefits to communities that really need investment and infrastructure. Yeah, and these other benefits, this is what stands out to me about this story. It's one of the reasons why the idea of a Green New Deal, you know, establishing a climate plan around solving economic and social problems is so attractive to people because you can bring in all these other benefits and you can't look at the extreme weather problem or the climate problem in isolation. We actually have an opportunity to solve a bunch of challenges at once. And I think that this story really speaks to that. I feel that addressing extreme heat is a really good pathway to addressing environmental racism and the history of it. You know, places that are have high heat vulnerability in New York City, at least, are places that are poorer, that have um, fewer uh, green spaces, that have lacked built environment infrastructure. You know, there is... Addressing extreme heat means you're addressing all of those problems. You need to have libraries for people to go and parks that are green, not concrete, that have good shade and have public pools, for example. So I do think that extreme heat is a motivating factor on its own in terms of addressing an emergency problem where people need to be safe on a really hot day and we just need to make sure people don't die or have to go to the hospital. But it's also... Uh, almost like a roadmap or a pathway to, yeah, I mean, addressing these bigger structural issues and need to build out better social infrastructure in communities. Alexandria Herr is our producer here at The Carbon Copy. Alexandria, thanks for another great story. Thanks for having me. So who did we hear from in this episode? Well, we heard from Sonal Jessel, who is the Director of Policy at West Harlem Environmental Action. We also heard from Eric Kleinenberg. He's a professor of sociology at New York University. And finally, we heard from Danielle Renwick, who's an editor at Nexus Media News. And The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can find all kinds of great stories on the energy transition at canarymedia.com. And if you subscribe to their newsletter, you'll get our podcast along with a bunch of other great coverage. And you can, of course, find our podcast anywhere you get your shows on podcast apps. The episode was produced by Alexandria Herr and Cecily Mesa-Martinez is our managing producer. Ann Bailey is our senior editor. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. Original music came from Sean Marquand, Echo Finch, and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. It's hugely helpful. Send us your thoughts on social media and shoot a link over to a friend or colleague if you think they'd like the show. I'm Stephen Lacey with Alexandria Herr, and this is The Carbon Copy.